Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York City trumpet player, singer, songwriter, and instigator, Bria Schoenberg. She just got signed on to Sony and is moving on to bigger and better things. And in June of 2016's issue of Downbeat, she was called one of the top 25 rising stars in the jazz world. Her last album was 2014's In Your Own, and she discussed that and how a girl from Chilliwack, British Columbia, would go on to a big career in jazz. She talked about her formal education at Capilano University in Canada and explained how she has been characterized as expanding the vocabulary and traditions of Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet with worldly rhythms and modern jazz variants. Bria is very active all over the globe and has great things happening in her world. So get to know her and dig this interview, my friends. Hey, thank you for taking a little time out for me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure, no problem. You know, I know on your website you're pretty good about putting up your, you know, tour dates and what's going on with you, but in your own words, give me a snapshot of activity that's going on with you lately. You know, every time you see somebody performing, like, you know, we're planning six months over a year in advance, so, <laughs> you know, I'm really, really trying to project what's going on. I don't know if you know this, but I, I didn't put it on my website yet, but I just signed a big contract with Sony Records, yeah, and which is really super exciting. But you know that's been in the works for six or seven months, and patients of waiting and seeing and and all that. So so now it's cool because some bigger bigger blocks are starting to move. You know, just I guess plans for plans for next year in a way too. So I guess you could just say, well, I was trying to stay, uh, you know, six minutes, six months, years ahead of yourself. Yeah. Well. It, it has to feel good to have that kind of clout behind you now and to see things moving forward. Yeah, no, no, incredibly. You know, every every step, every time the thing, uh, you know, somebody lends their support, you just, it's just encouraging. You know, it just kind of reaffirms, like, okay, you know, I am on the right path. And a lot of times in this um, career, you're not, <laughs> you have to kind of double-check that. Well, let me ask you this. So speaking of a new label, uh your latest album, 2014, In Your Own. Talk to me a little bit about how you felt about that album and what album might be in the works now, especially with this newest development in your life. Um, In Your Own was a really, you know, I think every album I've put out so far has been a real snapshot of where I was at at that time, you know, and when working through a lot of ideas. I mean, I was really lucky that Brandon Mac Records the people that put out the last two albums, they just, they gave me so much freedom and nurtured ideas that I had, even if they think it was crazy at the time. <laughs> and, uh, uh. Like, like, you know, like I wanted to put the distortion on the trumpet and, and you know, really delve into a little bit more singer-songwriter type stuff. That's what the last album was for me, for some songwriting classes. And, you know, some of the songs are a little bit different um, form-wise than, like, your average jazz tunes or such. So... Um, a lot of them have been really exploration. Um, the last album, again, was kind of a stamp on it where, you know, I just wanted to be uh, unapologetic for the things that I wanted to try and do. And then as far as moving forward, um, the album that's coming out, and hopefully some people will be, you know, are have just been about taking the best element of those to date or the, the ideas that have kind of stuck around over time and it really resonated with myself. Yeah, and creating more music that really owns that sound, you know, like, it's a process along with finding your own voice and then finding that voice on two instruments and then where they put the size. 
Yeah, there's a quote from Miles Davis that says that it takes a long, long time to find that inner voice within you. And you think yeah. that immediately when you hear an album, that's the voice, but it's all an evolution. You know, there's always more to learn. Yeah, um, we're always growing. I mean, yeah. That's true. yeah, you would help, yeah. So before we depart the present and move to Chilliwack, British Columbia, I'm going to ask you, um, probably something that's been on your radar is that you were recognized as one of the top 25 rising jazz artists in Downbeat. What what does that feel like? What is the afterglow band? Just kind of talk to me a little bit about that kind of designation. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a huge, I mean, it's a really big honor and, you know, again, total validation that the main book teams, I mean, Downbeat's been around forever. I have a I think Louis Armstrong's been on it. Uh, everybody's been on downbeat, so for them to kind of recognize, or at least be on the radar, like you say, you know, it's really exciting. Um, at the same time, it just kind of, to me, it translates to like, okay, now I better live on the pitch. <laughs> I got to, yeah. you know, you got to work twice as hard. And it keeps me really accountable, you know, for the quality of my work and making sure I practice and write <laughs> and do what I need to do. So, in a way, you know, they think. Yeah, when, when they say for the future, that's really encouraging. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. How does a girl from Chilliwack, British Columbia, grow up to become a big major jazz artist? Well, my, my you know, my hometown had a jazz festival, and they did a really good job of uh, incorporating the youth, like the public school music programs and performing and all of that. So I got exposed to live jazz at a young age. I think that's just really what makes all the difference, you know, being able to see people play and being able to hear the music, being able to feel the music live. Um, and the music of that festival kind of centered around a lot of the roots of, of jazz and um, the, you know, the New Orleans style ensemble playing that had a lot of interaction and really fun. You know, the people that played it were really entertaining, you know, people of all ages. So I just got drawn in and there was really a culture about it. I didn't really question that it was that strange let me ask you this prior to getting involved with your native instrument now which is the trumpet you took piano lessons early on did you always feel like there was a music bug that was in you that was going to stay forever and that needed to get out well I think that uh, you know like most actually, it was probably singing that I most wanted to get out uh, you know just watching different idols of mine that I enjoyed. You know, I really wanted to perform, to ha- have that role and play for people. Um, I did, also my, you know, my grandma played piano when I was a lot of kids, but she played totally by ear, but she would play, and my brother would play fiddle. So, again, the music was just kind of always around. I mean, I wanted to get it out, but I was never, I was I wasn't ever really stifled. My parents were very encouraging. We were, and we grew up, you know, I grew up on a kind of a two-acre the land where you could make some real noise. Let me ask you this. Was there an album when you were growing up that kind of blew your doors down? What was one of the first jazz albums you listened to that really did something for you? At that time, you know, a lot of jazz compilations and such were coming out, and those those were the ones that probably influenced me the most. I mean, even stuff like Louis Armstrong's Greatest Hits, these are the ones that my teachers would give me. You know, I guess the you just kind of got the hits, but um, I listened to those a lot. There was a good Duke Ellington uh, you know, Clark Terry, like Duke Ellington, which I really gravitated towards. 
clubs, but I, but I listen to so many different kinds of music. You know, I think my favorite album at that time was probably Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, you know, Lauren Hill, the Miseducational Lauren Hill. And I also, you know, I had a PG tape that I really loved. And I like, you know, I, I liked a lot of different kinds of music, punk and God. And those reasons, those ones probably resonated the most with me at that time. But, um, Otherwise, yeah, different kind of compilations, you know, even mixtapes. So we would make, I had some big jam mixes, but no specific album, I'm sorry to say, but it just kind of, I guess, fostered my love. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Let me ask you this. How did you land on the trumpet? How did that become your instrument? My dad played back in high school. He just, when I when it came to the time to choose instruments for seventh grade band, he could play trumpet, and I said, okay. I think we, probably because we owned one. Yeah. Obviously, the major classroom of of learning jazz is going out in the world and playing. But in a formal environment at Capilano University in Canada, what did you learn in a formal environment that helped you so much in being a musician? I think there, there I really learned the discipline. Um, like, I didn't have a private teacher until I got to college. And so... Um, you know, I, it was really some, you know, finally somebody was giving me specific lessons to work on, and I was just being, again, in a community, a culture of people that, of younger people that are, that were all totally into the same thing, and also, you know, challenging at the same time. Most people that go to music college, they come out, and they're like, oh, I was, you know, I, I had the solo in the jazz band, I had, I got this award, that award, and then it's like, okay, we're all in the same boat. It just, it just, you know, you, you get into that, you get immersed in a more challenging culture. Yeah. So you have been described, your your way of playing has been described this way. You were expanding the vocabulary and traditions of Louis Armstrong, Sidney Bechet, with worldly rhythms and modern jazz variants. Explain that. <laughs> it's, kind of hard to, it's hard to explain because my, you know, the basis of my, uh, you know, the mu- my education and my musical sensibilities are New Orleans jazz, the blues, and um at the same time, like you said, like I have been trained in more modern jazz styles, or specifically jazz harmonies, but also, um, you know, I love adding percussion into the mix. Nowadays, my drummer, like, sits on a Brazilian cajon, and he's got tambourines and shakers at the same time. So, <laughs> yeah. and these, are, these are just, like, accessing a bunch of sounds that I'm interested in. Yeah. So, you have been very comfortable in a leader role. You've been very comfortable in a side person role, so to speak. Um, you were the leader of Vancouver's Bria's Hot Five, the big, uh, the big bang jazz band, and then you were a part of the Dow Richard band and orchestra, I should say. What do you feel more at home with, or do you feel at home with both of them in a different way, being a leader or being in kind of a side gig? Yeah, I mean, I like to be in both positions because you can learn so much in both of them. And being a being a band leader will make you a better side person. That's for sure, because you can I can empathize with the band leaders in that situation. But also, yeah, I mean, there's a certain, um, you know, I like a lot of freedom. I like to kind of direct again where I want the music to go and pick the people that I play with at the same time. I like to be in situations where I don't know what to expect. It's good. You know, like the Down Richards Orchestra, that was really a show band, and I kind of, like, really understood how to pace the show and, um, you know, just perform on a on a higher level, and there's no you know there's not as much stress. I don't have to figure out how to get everybody in the van to the gig. I don't have to create the charts and write the music. <laughs> yeah, know, we're the happiest. The, the busiest band leaders are a lot of times the happiest side people. 
You know, I I watched the uh, uh, Vince Giordano brought his documentary to Kansas yeah. City about a month ago, and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and he was talking about you know in that documentary about you know when he goes to these gigs, how he has to get everybody together. He started yeah. getting my heart racing, and I had nothing to do. I was just watching yeah. the movie. Yeah, I was well, like, both, oh my god, <laughs> you know. Both he and I play often in this band uh, on Wednesdays at Birdland called the Louis Armstrong Eternity Band. And it's led by the tuba player, but and uh, Vince plays banjo in the band. But I, like, I think we both love it because there's no there's no rehearsal. We just play tunes. It's always engaging and interesting and fun. Uh, but it's such a low stress environment. <laughs> so great. Well, that's good. I'm glad that he has ways of kind of counteracting all of that leadership. But yeah, Vince is like the jazz energizer bunny. I mean, I don't oh, know how incredible. he does it. He is. He's incredible. He's a force, man. He's just yeah. a force. Yeah, I would say he's a great inspiration and almost a mentor in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. So talk to me a little bit about being the co-founder of the all-female group, Mighty Aphrodite Jazz Band. What has that experience been like? What What was that group like? Talk to me a little bit about it. Yeah, well, that group was started in 2004. My best friend and I, Claire, we, we just loved playing together. And, you know, we had met some other super, you know, talented young females along the way that we thought would be a great fit for that too. We just thought it'd be fun and, and funny to kind of get to get more people in our age range together to play the music and and we were a really hard swinging band and we did a lot of great gigs but we haven't played pretty much since I moved to New York like you know I, it, I mean uh, to be honest it was kind of my choices for moving on and living into some new territory but, so we haven't played since for four or five years although we never officially disbanded but we're still um you know, last week I played a gig. When I go to the West Coast, the drummer's out there. I'll use her on gig. The trombone player lives in New York. We play together sometimes. So we're still, we're still all good friends. It, it had it had its heyday. Let me ask you this: You're very prolific. You've you've been around as far as going to jazz festivals and touring North America, Europe, China, Japan, Canada. How does travel enhance or affect the way that you make and present your music? I pick up sound everywhere I go, you know, and experiences, and, and it really just comes down, like, I think music making for me and enjoying music and all that is, just comes down to people, meeting people and being around new people, and, and, you know, everything that you experience when traveling from the camaraderie to the, to the food. Yeah. The, you know, that, that sneaks, I think that finds its way into the music. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Speaking of travel, you made a big journey from Canada down to New York City in 2010. Was that a culture shock? What was that move like for you to kind of come from Canada into the biggest hotbed of jazz in the world? <laughs> well, it was more gradual than that. Um, I graduated college in 2006, and I actually I spent the next four years traveling around the world and, and playing a lot of festivals, like you said, meeting a lot of different kinds of people and, and just kind of trying to figure out where my next move would be. I, I did a recording. I did a couple of tours around the outskirts in New York in 2008 and 2009 and ultimately realized I had more friends on the East Coast that I could tap into. So, um, so yeah, when I made the move and then I made two more kind of dive bomb trips just to kind of get in and integrate it in the scene. Which is the way to do it, you know, like I think people, they know that, you know, moving to New York, New York is hard. Sure, and I probably wouldn't have done it totally cold, like without knowing anybody. And even when I knew I was moving, I had about a six-month headway to put the word out and gain some work. So it wasn't it wasn't so bad. It wasn't such a culture shock. 
and I knew, you know, I was just so ready for something different at that point. I jumped right in. Well, obviously things worked out. You performed with big shots like Bucky Pizzarelli, Howard Allen, yeah. White Cliff Gordon. What's it been like to share the stage, um, especially at younger parts of your jazz existence? What did you learn from people that had all this mileage and clout in their lives? You know, Bucky, I remember sitting on a on a bus with Bucky. We had both flown into the Seattle airport. We're taking a trip out to uh, somewhere in the little islands over in Washington State. And I was <laughs> surprised because he just said, I don't know, he's like, bus is the best way to travel. Yeah, I really like being on the bus. You know, and he's like 84 yeah. years old at this time saying, yeah. yeah, you know, the bus isn't so bad. Like, you know, saying what he likes about traveling or this and that. And he's so easygoing. He's so just like, you know, I guess when you had that mileage, like you said, and also you know, uh, just experienced a lot, been through everything probably, he just kind of rolls with it. Yeah. You know? And I think where I've kind of, you know, got, got the balance, you know, if you can achieve balance, that's kind of the difficult part for a lot of musicians. It's just, you know, you don't get don't get too high, don't get too low. Um, you know, one way or another, something will happen. <laughs> like, yeah. with, with travel plans especially, nothing never happens, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of kind of chaotic situations that can arise, but to keep a cool level head and keep going. You know, I always say that those older jazz cats represent what I consider the Jazz Jedi Council, like this, you know, yeah. hallowed group of a circle of people that just have so much experience that nothing phases them, and they're always yeah. ready to roll. So that's it. Yeah. That's that's really it. It's only you know the experience has has given me the confidence and strength and all of the, all that to move to keep going forward and and even as like as I get this huge opportunity you know Sony and so on these are things that maybe I I wanted 10 years ago but I realize now that I just wasn't ready I wasn't ready to understand and or just to like to emotionally handle what what is all involved so and and that's kind of the you know in the culture these days a lot of people get that success really quickly and it can be really damaging. So I just, I'm, you know, and to be in a position where you're, you know, you're confident, accept the responsibilities that and the um, performances and such, but also have the ability to look back and be really grateful and, and kind of pay, you know, uh, give credit to all the people that have helped you get to this place. So it's, you get another perspective, you know, you're older and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more fulfilling that way. You, you, there, there's a couple things I kind of want to take um, from what you just said there. First of all, you know, g getting awards and getting accolades, you know, you've gotten them over your life. The CBC Jazz Award of Merit 2006, 2007, the Kobe Jazz Street Award. There's been a lot of awards that you've won. So my question is this. I don't want to know what your favorite one is. I want to know which one you got that blindsided you, where you were like, wow, I just didn't expect that and... Right on. Let's see. Last year, I was given the – there's a – Jazz Lincoln Center gives what they call the Swing Award. Yeah. Um, and it was only a, maybe the, the second, third year in or something. Um, but they kind of give it to, I believe, you know, up-and-coming people that are making a difference in their own community, not just musically, but um, in a lot of different ways. And and when, when I got that recognition, I was really surprised – also, probably because I moved to New York, but a lot of a lot of the players around here that are younger, I mean, they, they come from, they go to Juilliard, and they go to Manhattan School of Music, and they, you know, they're incredible little, like, monster machines of, of playing, and I kind of just showed up and 
<laughs> and went for it. So, so to get to get that recognition from such a huge institution like Jazz at Lincoln Center and all the things they do was really encouraging. And I've since uh, done quite a bit of work with them and for them. And um, yeah, I think that one that one felt pretty good. And I certainly it just kind of came out of left field. So, right on. Yeah. Right on. Yeah, that's cool. So, and you did also mention, you know, the people that have influenced you and teachers um, up to this point. Tell me what teacher's advice that you got that, real, that really still reverberates with you, something that kind of you remember on a regular basis. But the first thing that comes to mind is um, one of the first, in the first six months, I, I was lucky I met Lou Soloff, the trumpet player, and he said, you know, there's, there's always going to be somebody who plays faster. There's going to be somebody who plays higher. And in a place like New York, the only place you have for survival, it's just figuring yeah. out what you, what you have that nobody else has. It's just, you know, owning it. And, um, you know, he was just saying, like we said, you know, really focus on what makes you unique. Yeah, I know. I think, again, I had had this, I, I stumbled by the wayside on this big education in the roots of jazz, Louis Armstrong, New Orleans-style jazz. And I didn't expect when I came to New York that I would be playing so much of it. You know, I kind of came to grow and expand, and I have done that. It has been a little bit of what sets me apart from a lot of the other um, these players of this generation so far, having that knowledge. But, uh, you know, I think people are coming around to it. <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a bit of a renaissance uh, revival of, well, we're calling it hot jazz, so. <laughs> yeah, hot jazz, yeah. hot jazz activity. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Well, speaking of that hot jazz activity, you know, we're talking about Louis Armstrong, Sidney Bechet. There's been a lot of names that have been brought up that have been influential for you that you've listened to. So if we could get into a time machine and go, and you could see a show anywhere, where would you go and who would you want to see? <laughs> I mean, it would have to be Louis. And, I mean, the one that comes to mind is not is not anywhere where I should be because, you know, Louis Armstrong, he was an incredible musician, um, and all around humanitarian, and I just heard the story that there was a, a concert he did in Africa years ago, years, years, years ago, but the two two of the countries in Africa were at war, but they literally called a ceasefire so that both sides could watch the Louis Armstrong concert. Like, wow. if you, can you Can you imagine in the Middle East if two, <laughs> two countries stopped fighting to watch a concert? That's of, profound. Some, well, it's, inc- it's incredibly profound, and so... Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't be there, but that's like that just comes to mind as the most incredible concert I've ever heard of. <laughs> you know, that's that's a great story. I've never heard that. I mean, and you know, they, they always say, you know, if we had music, music is the grand equalizer in life. If we had more yeah. of it, people would be happier. But that's proof in the pudding. That's the metaphor at work. You know, yeah. Uh, I mean, but Louis Armstrong stopped a war. The, how do you how how do you yeah. stop that? He, yeah. you know, that's amazing. Yeah. That is the best time machine answer I've ever got. <laughs> yeah. This is just a very simple question, but I think it kind of gets to the core of a jazz musician. Why do you love jazz? <laughs> it came to mind the other day when I was playing. It's, it's like the closest I can get to flying. That's very cool. Uh, let me ask you this. What is the nicest thing a fan has ever said to you? I only have to think about it because, I've, you know, I've just been blessed with so many extremely nice, nice people. I mean, sometimes it's not what they say. It's what they don't say. In that, you know, there have been times where I just like, basically stand there and hold hands and look at look at somebody while they're on the verge of tears. Yeah. You know, they're they're having a moment. Something that the music, something the music did, either brought them to a place that they have been, or they want to go, or they're working through something, or you know that kind of thing. And so it, you know, I think sometimes the the meetings that I've had where 
it can't be put into words are the ones with the most weight. All I all I say is we just you know I say thank you, they say thank you. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's all. That that's all. That's, that's all. cool. So, do you remember the first time you gave your autograph out? I don't know if I can. I mean, my the first album, my my band uh, that was the Big Bang Jazz Band was originally the Fifty First Eight, and we put out our first CD in two thousand one. So it would probably be around that. <laughs> yeah. When we started signing, time. started signing things. Yeah. So I mean, fifteen years ago, <laughs> sixteen years ago. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was. For, it, it's weird. I was thinking the other day about nine eleven. I was like, man, that's been fifteen years ago. How did yeah, that happen? You know, know. it's just yeah. time just totally flies. So yeah, there's no way you can Rolodex all of the I, things that happened. I will say it did take me a couple of years when finally I clued into like, oh, signing. This is going to be a thing, and so then I practiced my signature. <laughs> Very cool. Very yeah. cool. <laughs> you have to do that. Yeah. Well, I thought I was going to be a baseball player as a kid, so I did it on you know the bad baseball cards. Yeah. No one, no one can read what I say now. Um, yeah. <laughs> now my son mimics what I do, so we both have illegible signatures, so it's good. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. It's my final question. Everyone has a version of who you are. They have a perception of who you are, your family, your friends, your business associates, uh, those that you play for in the crowd. But when you wake up in the morning, who do you think you are? You know, on a good day, which is most days. <laughs> I, I think I have the same sort of spirit that I do when, that I did when I was 13, 14 years old. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I'm just, I have a, I'm, I'm excited about what's coming up. You know, a little silly, <laughs> definitely. Nice. I definitely love, love some silliness, but also kind of, you know, full of some, full of energy and excited by the things that I don't know, you know. Right on. That's a great answer. Yeah. Perfect. Bria, yeah. thanks again. <laughs> And hey, good good luck with Sony. I love the music and continue yeah. success. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Canada, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Bria for her time, her honesty, and her stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or always visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things neon jazz until next time enjoy the music my friends neon jazz